Hey there, you're listening to episode 66 of the Finish Line Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Dan Scribner, who leads the Joshua Project. Welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Dan Scribner, who leads the Joshua Project. Dan has been with the Joshua Project since it launched in 1995 and has had an incredible bird's-eye view of the changing missions landscape during that time, as their team has sought to define the progress towards Christ's great commission to bring the gospel to all tribes, nations, and tongues. Before we get started, I just want to remind you about our Finish Line Sprints. If you've been getting a lot out of this podcast and are looking for a way to take it to the next level, you should consider starting or joining a sprint. A sprint is a guided program for small groups meant to lead you through overarching biblical themes related to wealth and money, while allowing you to explore the restored freedom and purpose that comes with choosing a financial finish line. The sprint guide is completely free and available right on our website at finishlinepledge.com slash sprint. Sprints are also completely self-led, so you don't need a trained leader or someone who's been through the program before. All you need are a couple friends to get started. So check it out and get a group together today. With that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today with Dan Scribner. Thanks so much for being with us today, Dan. Oh, my privilege. Can you get us started? Just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Sure. I grew up in Connecticut in a very moral but non-Christian family. started attending a new church during the gas shortage of the 1970s, and my dad just said, we're going to just go to the nearest church. And we weren't believers, but we had been going a long distance to church, and it ended up the church that we began attending was a very strong evangelical church. And through a youth group, I came to faith. Actually, I had a Billy Graham movie when I was 12, but for the next seven or eight years, didn't really mature or grow as a Christian much at all. Basically, my goals were the American dream. Go to college, get a good education, get a job in corporate America, move up the ladder, have 2.1 kids, house with a white picket fence. <laughs> all that changed when I got to college. I was involved in a crew or rowing my last couple of years, but between my junior and senior year, I had an injury, so I wasn't able to row anymore. And then got involved with a campus ministry where we were praying for the countries of the world every day at noon. And it really began to change my view and a desire to grow in the Lord and also realizing that the gospel was really something global, not just local to my own little setting. We graduated from college, but spent the next two years on Guam and Japan involved with evangelism and discipleship ministry. Met my wife, who's from California. We lived in the U.S. for four years in various places. I worked for General Electric as an engineer for four years, but we always had the intent of going back to ministry. And so we raised support. And 35 years ago next month, we joined the staff of the U.S. Center for World Mission, which is today called Frontier Ventures, and have been on their staff ever since for 35 years. And I know that the Joshua Project is a part of that organization, just one aspect of what they do. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about how all of that started to come together. Sure. Actually, Joshua Project was birthed under a different ministry that I was seconded to from Frontier Ventures or U.S. Center for World Mission. It was a ministry called 82,000 and Beyond. It was a global network of leaders focused on the year 2000, not in any prophetic way, even in the name it says and beyond. It was more just like Hey, this is a milestone, a new millennium. Let's just look at the picture of the Great Commission and see, you know, what's, what can we do to move it forward? So in 1995, Joshua Project was birthed under the 82,000 Beyond Movement, really out of a burden to see greater clarity of Matthew 28, 19, particularly that idea of making disciples of all people groups. At that time, I was really the only one involved. I was kind of given the task of identifying the largest unreached people groups. And um, that list was 
a challenge to put together, but also very error-filled at that time back in 1995. In 1999, another gentleman joined the 82,000 movement and was working with me under Joshua Project. So there were two of us. But then at the end of the year 2000, that ministry closed. We were still Frontier Venture staff, but worked with Joshua Project, there were just two of us for several years, about a decade. During that time, we became part of Frontier Ventures. Formally, Joshua Project was brought under the U.S. Center for Rural Mission. Today, there's actually four of us. The third gentleman joined us about 10 years ago, and then most recently, a gentleman in 2020. So we operate on a tiny budget since we all raise support as traditional missionaries. The Lord has been so gracious to provide for our needs through just web donations that we don't even solicit. We actually try to avoid making a big deal about funding. So the Lord has just been really, really gracious. Main things we do are just gathering, integrating, and presenting people group data with a focus on reached people groups, trying to identify the gaps and then network with as many people really around the world to help encourage them one, to help refine the data, but more importantly, to actually then begin church planting among these gaps or these unreached people groups. So just as a little side note, Zoom during COVID, Zoom felt like a burden or I was like, what is this new thing being added to my life called Zoom? <laughs> but in retrospect, it's it's been a huge blessing because it's allowed us to connect with people we never would have connected with before. Anyway, that's just a little aside, but it shows how the Lord can take something very difficult and challenging, a pandemic, but some of the results of it can be very positive. So, Yeah, Dan, I've heard that about Zoom just unlocking new channels for missions and really incredible collaboration and outreach across the globe. But just walking back a little bit, back to the beginnings of Joshua Project and your involvement in this space. I'd love to just hear a little bit about, from your perspective, what was the missions landscape? What was the approach to global missions at that time? And how has that evolved throughout the years? Sure. Well, I'd have to say in 1995, at least from a people group perspective, things were pretty undefined. Most ministries were really would say they were focused on countries. You know, people would say, well, what nations are you working in? And people would say, well, we're in Thailand or Vietnam or whatever where really the biblical concept of nations is people groups. And that was a growing understanding, but there really wasn't a lot of definition put to it. And I would say one of the big changes has been a real shift towards people group thinking. I mean, whole ministries have reorganized themselves instead of around geographic countries, now around people groups. So a much more granular view of the Great Commission. Back in those days, as we all recognize, incredibly limited communication mechanisms. I remember in 1995, there was a conference in Korea that 82,000 put on called the Global Consultation on World Evangelization, Jokowi 95, it was called. That's what actually birthed Joshua Project was the need to present some data at that conference. And it was about 2,500 participants and 100 or so different countries, geopolitical countries represented. And we gathered the data for that conference via fax and postal letter, <laughs> not even through email. I mean, can you imagine putting on a conference for 2,500 people from over 100 countries today and having to do it by fax? You know, so <laughs> communication was incredibly limited at that time. Another part of the landscape that has changed so dramatically is the pace of Bible translation. Well, in the year 2000, I know there was a group of Bible translators who got together and said, at the current pace of new Bible translations, it's going to take another 150 years before we begin translation in every language that needs it. They set a goal of starting Bible translation in every language that needed it by 2025 and made some dramatic changes that we can talk about further as we want. But I think they won't. We hit 2025, but I think they're on planning on probably meeting that goal by 2033. So the pace of Bible translation is dramatically accelerated. Another area that has changed dramatically in how things looked back in the 90s, certainly the missions movement was global. I don't want to make it sound like it isn't, but I would say the Western church was kind of at the forefront, meaning the European and North American were the predominant sending bases 
and sort of the driver of missions, if you will. Although Korea certainly begun to really develop in that arena as well. But now I think that the global South is really the driving and the future force of global missions. And really the mantle is being taken up by the national church for the responsibility of the evangelization of the people groups in their own country. I don't want to look at it as a passing of the baton, like that the Western church now is handing over responsibility for the Great Commission to the global South. I think it's much more a partnership than it is like a passing on, like it's not a relay where one group is running and it stops running when someone else I think really is a partnership that's developing, but that landscape has dramatically changed since the beginning of at least Joshua Project. That whole idea of Global South is now an equal, if not leading, partner in fulfillment of the Great Commission. As a medical professional, I have to say that we are now one of the main industries keeping facts alive. So it's good to know (laughs) that it was going strong back in 1995, literally sent multiple faxes today. So I wanted to dive in a little bit more to something you were saying about Bible translation. Now, we've had a couple podcast guests that have really kind of dived into what that landscape looks like now. We've heard that 2033 goal multiple times and the Illuminations collaboration between some of the major players working in the translation space right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on And just to get a little bit more context for some of that history, which we haven't heard as much, you talked about 2000 being kind of a pivotal moment in the pace of things. So a little bit about what that has looked like from 2000 onwards. And then also, I'd love to hear your thoughts about how kind of the interaction between Bible translation and evangelism, how some of these different pieces fit together and what you've seen from kind of a bird's eye view of it all. Sure. I don't want to pretend that I know all the ins and outs of Illuminations and E10, the Every Tribe, Every Nation Coalition. I think it was 2000. Somebody who was an insider would be much better at correcting that date. But I know that the heads of like Wycliffe, SIL, probably Pioneer Bible Translators and a number of others sat down and and evaluated and came up with what I mentioned earlier about, you know, the pace was just too slow and they needed to do things in a new way. And I don't know when the Illuminations Coalition, if you will, or Cooperative Network developed, but from my understanding, they have remarkable collaboration, really a model of collaboration in their midst where they share technology. There's a software called Paratext that has been developed, I think, mostly by one or two of these agencies, but they've made it available to all the Bible translation agencies dramatically accelerates making a first draft. They share a common pool of repository where they've put their translations into a common repository so that it's very easy to see if there's du- or easy to avoid duplication because you're seeing what everyone else is working on. They've shared personnel at times where maybe someone has an expertise in an area where another ministry has a challenge and they're sharing that. And then I think one of the most exciting is they're even approaching major donors as a coalition rather than individually. And so they can go to a major donor and say, here's a plan. We want to translate these 15 languages. Here's our project. Here's how we're going to do it together. Here's how it's going to have efficiency of scale. Here's how we're networking together. I think that's a very appealing to a major donor and has been very successful and just really helped accelerate the process. The interaction between Bible translation and reaching of people groups, obviously highly interconnected in a sense. I can't imagine trying to make disciples of a people group if you didn't have the scriptures. Obviously, some people are going to be bilingual in a group and could learn, use a national language translation of the Bible, but obviously the heart language is most effective. So I think they go hand in hand. Just very interesting. Just earlier this week, I was had a conversation with a SIL gentleman who's working with artificial intelligence, and he wanted to take Joshua Project historical data from the last 20 plus years and match that against Bible translation progress and see if there was a correlation between the development of Bible 
translations in a given language and how has that translated into reaching groups that speak that language. So we're hoping to be able to pull that data together for him and see what comes of it. Although there are some challenges because the data is not a perfect set of data. But it'd be interesting to see that if there is a correlation there, as more Bible translation is developed in new languages, are the groups that speak those languages then seeing acceleration in church growth? So he's interested in having artificial intelligence do some of it. So we'll see what that does. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Dan, you've mentioned data and research and part of the role that Joshua project plays in this bigger picture toward Bible translation, the completion of the Great Commission, mobilizing the gospel. But I'd love to just get a real specific look at kind of why does the Joshua Project exist and what has your team been able to accomplish over the decades? And then specifically, what does your day-to-day look like right now? Sure. Well, really the reason Joshua Project exists, and I credit this back to Really, this isn't a thought that comes from Desiring God Ministries and John Piper, but as believers, it's not about a checklist. It's not about a task. It's not about just that our side wins, if you will. It's the fact that the creator of the universe is not being worshipped by his creation in a way that's appropriate and full and complete. That Jesus, the Lamb of God, is worthy of worship from every people group. I think that's what is the foundation and the driving motivation of Joshua Project is he is worthy of worship from every people group, from every language, from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people. And where is that worship being given to idols and false gods other than Jesus? Because he deserves that, not anyone else. And so that's why Joshua Project exists. We were primarily, obviously, from a people group lens, the ethne of the world, Obviously, we get the word ethnic from that Greek word ethne. So there are other perspectives. I don't want to minimize other perspectives. I love the fact that in Revelation, at least four times, you see that every tribe, tongue, nation, and people in some combination. And I think that that is just a picture of comprehensiveness. You know, at the end of Mark, what would be the equivalent of the Great Commission is, you know, to say, preach the gospel to every creature. That's Joshua Project's sort of DNA and why we exist. So what we've accomplished over the years, I think, is developed a fairly good set of the people groups of the world. It's far from perfect. Uh, There are other lists, actually, as well, and we work very closely with them. We come at it from a particular perspective. I think it's a very good thing. One of the sort of initial mentor of Joshua Project is Patrick Johnstone, who was the initial editor and creator of Operation World, praying for the countries of the world, geopolitical countries. He always encouraged us that, hey, there are many perspectives on the Great Commission, and Joshua Project just offers one. And even if there are others that are similar, they it's like looking at a painting from multiple angles or a piece of sculpture, and you see it uniquely from each perspective. For example, in South Asia, Joshua Project, begins by looking at the grid from a caste perspective. Not that we support caste in any way, but it is a reality in South Asia. And so it forms substantial barriers to the flow of the gospel. So all of the people group lists for Joshua Project is based on caste and then religion, where some other lists might look at it from a language perspective, which is perfectly valid, but it means the lists look a little bit different. And sometimes that trips people up, like, why are we hearing different numbers from different sources and things like that? One of the things we've accomplished is a fairly good list, the ethnic people groups of the world, from a church planting perspective. We've had some success, but could really see much more, is getting that into the hands of people who can do something with it. I mean, Joshua Project is not intended to be an academic exercise to just create a list of ethnic people groups. It's meant to be catalytic in pioneer church planting, where people would see what I call deployable resources, meaning a mission agency, donors, etc., who have resources that can impact the Great Commission, that they would then see gaps and be able to prioritize where their deployable resources are directed. And we've done some of that of that presentation. So there's the data 
accumulation and management, but then there's a presentation. I think we could do a much better job on the presentation side of things, especially in today's world where everything is done in small bites, in infographics, in short videos, et cetera. And the average age of the four of us in Joshua Project is over 63 years old. So we're uh, trusting the Lord for some younger people with some really creative ideas of how do you present the picture of the Great Commission in a compelling way. We have the date. I think now it's just a matter of the presentation. I found it really interesting what you're talking about with the caste system. That's something I never would have thought about, even across the same language people group. And I'd love to hear a couple more examples of maybe some ways that people groups kind of break down that, you know, the average Christian might not really think about or be on their radar. Sure. Well, the caste system is probably the biggest one because in South Asia, and when I say South Asia, I mean India, of course, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Bhutan, Nepal, and Sri Lanka, those six countries, caste generally, it's breaking down some, but it's still very rigid under the surface. You marry within your caste generally, you will only eat within a caste generally, your level of caste, you marry, your job is often determined by your caste. I've been in meetings with Christian leaders, and I say this carefully, who come from different castes. I've talked with some of the lower caste people at times, and they will graciously say, there are people in this room who will not shake my hand because of the caste barriers. So it's a real barrier to the gospel. There has to be very deliberate effort to plant a church in a caste. And as you said, they may all speak the same language. Fascinating, in part in South Asia, I think the average person speaks at least three, if not four or five languages fluently. Wow. I mean, you have the home language, you have the educational language, you have official government activity occurs often in a certain language. And then you might have a language that's used for just casually on the street that everybody uses. So Language is actually less of a barrier in South Asia than caste by far. Then you have the religious divide, where even within a caste, you may have Hindus of that caste and Muslims of that caste, and they will not associate. They're very challenging. Even after becoming believers, they're trying to break down some of those barriers of fellowship is a challenge. I'm not an expert in that. I don't want to make it sound overly negative. So in other parts of the world, typically it's language, especially now in smaller rural settings, you have language is a, is a major barrier where, you know, there may be only a small number of speakers. And if the Bible doesn't exist and there aren't Christians, then there's a real barrier to the gospel there. Although that's breaking down because of globalization and urbanization. Another topic we could touch on, but usually it's a combination of South Asia's caste is the barrier to the flow of the gospel and religion. And then in other parts of the world, it can be religion, but primarily language. And it can be cultural. There can be a little bit of Hatfield-McCoy type issues in certain settings. For example, in China, there are certain groups, they speak the same language, they have the same ethnic background, but there's division just culturally that separates them. So they each will need very unique church planting efforts. So Yeah, Dan, we've heard the name Joshua Project mentioned several times in other interviews with ministries that you all have partnered with or continue to partner with. And it just seems that the work that you do plays such an important role in the greater picture of what's happening in the missions community. And I'm always excited to hear about how those partnerships form. How do you select who to work with, who to make this data available to, and what are the mechanisms for doing that in an efficient way? Well, you're very kind to suggest that we, you know, other ministries are using the information. Sometimes I feel like that's pretty scary. In one sense, I remember a number of years ago, I had a phone call and someone was very gracious about the list of data, but they said, you know, I want to point out that this particular entry on your list is not a people group. It's the name of a river. The data is way better than it was. We very rarely now have major corrections. In terms of partnerships, I mean, we'll work with anybody. We're not a denominationally tagged group. You know, we would be conservative evangelical in our outlook, but we make the data publicly available. We don't charge for anything. We give it away. You can download 
almost our full data set. If someone hacked into our servers, I don't think they would get anything other than what they could on the web. So <laughs> we deliberately avoid any kind of secure data. Like we don't even want to know that Ministry X has Missionary Y working in this ultra-sensitive region. You know, we just, one, don't have the smarts to protect it that well, but it just puts a burden of protection that we just don't have the bandwidth for. So everything we have is available even to people that might be opposed to the gospel. We know that there are certain groups who have taken our data and are using it for their causes, which would be opposed to the gospel. I mean, we publish percentages of two numbers, and we can get into that maybe in another discussion. But in a very tiny group, if you said, well, there's 5% Christian, that could narrow it down to a fairly small number of people if you're talking about a people group that's 10,000. And so we know that some governments have used the data. We also know that some governments have used the data in political elections. We know a situation in the Maldives where one candidate was accusing another based on some data from Joshua Project that they were allowing Christianity into the country, you know, crazy things. But in general partnership, we just want to put the data there, paint the picture. I have four grandkids, and when you do a puzzle, you always build the outline. I don't know if everybody does that, but we do. You kind of want to know what are the parameters, you know, what does this thing look like, at least the straight edges, you know, because they're the easiest to find. And I think that's just what Joshua Project hopes to do is just paint the picture, you know, give a little bit of a roadmap and then work with those who can have an impact in that. And we don't have any formal partnerships. We work very closely with some of the major global movements in any way we can serve them. We will query or slice the data in any way that might be helpful for them. I mean, one little example, we recently were approached by Samaritan's Purse, who does the Operation Christmas Child activity. And they said they have a real growing burden to use that platform for unreached people groups or impacting unreached groups because children who they are focused or ministering to through the Operation Christmas Child are a beautiful on-ramp into families. They have, I may misquote the number, but I think something like 70,000 volunteers who help with the distribution of the Operation Christmas Child. And they're specifically trying to have a good portion of that effort of the distribution go into children among unreached groups and then follow that up where they begin to maybe have opportunities with the families, the parents, and begin to maybe see fellowships birthed. So very informal, but we're providing them some data like the certain they wanted to focus on 300 of the largest unreached, most unreached groups. So we're going to provide them a set of photos, the data, and then a set of prayer points and maybe some simplified summary of that group that they're going to make prayer cards out of and use for their purposes. But that's the kind of partnerships we welcome. On the other side of things, for example, in Africa, there's a whole effort called the Movement of African National Initiatives, M-A-N-I. Mani. And it's, I think, all sub-Saharan African countries have a Mani expression. And they came to us and said, we want to use your data and refine it. They asked if we could make special spreadsheets for each country that then they could fill in. So we created like 50 some odd spreadsheets, sent it to them. And they're in the process of going locally to correct, update, and then mobilize based on that data. That's another example of a partnership where it's sort of more two-way, where we're hopefully getting back updates from them right from the ground and things like that. So it's just a joy to see, you know, I sit in Colorado behind a computer all day long, but it's just really a joy when someone says, man, I, particularly in other parts of the world where they said, we saw this piece of data and now we're planning a church there, you know, that makes it worthwhile, you know, when, when there's real action, real progress new worshipers brought before the throne that weren't there before. That's really the end desire of any ministry and any partnership that we are involved with. It's fun to have interviewed so many different people and organizations who are all interconnected on this podcast because you can really start to see the flow and process of it all. And I feel like Joshua project is right at kind of the top of the mountain where everything is flowing down from, along with a couple other key players, but very much so defining that task 
And, you know, then there's the next layer and the next layer and the next layer all the way down to the ground where the gospel is being shared. And then even beyond that discipleship. And it's just, I feel like so encouraging for me to see this bigger picture because that's what God sees all the time. He's not focused in like we are so much, but he sees this whole picture. You mentioned earlier about in the early days, collecting data by fax and mail letters. And I'm sure you guys do it differently nowadays. I'd love to hear a little bit more detail about how you guys try to answer some of the questions that you have and the gaps that remain. And obviously the data is always changing. So how you kind of keep up and manage that aspect of it as well. Well, you touched on probably the greatest weakness in Joshua Project, Keelan, to be very honest. You know, with just four of us involved, we aren't big enough to do, you know, on-the-ground research ourselves. We're almost, I don't want to say passive, but for example, on the website, we plead for updates because that's our lifeblood. And we do get a stream of that. It's usually a local missionary saying, you know, we now are seeing a church planting movement occurring in this people group, and hopefully we can then get some metrics that will help us update the data. But updating the data is our biggest challenge. And what we've realized is it's better to publish wrong data than not publish data at all, because people react to wrong. They'll see something, they'll say, wait a minute, I live in that area, and I've never seen any Christians or whatever, if it's a small group. Or vice versa, you know, they'll say, wait a minute, there's a whole church planting movement going on here. So we really long for that updating process. And it's mainly through the web and then through personal relationships. And that's what we talked about earlier about Zoom has been a real blessing because we can Zoom with the groups like MANI, the Movement of African National Initiatives, or leaders in India or whatever. And then when that relationship is built, they're much more eager to share their national research. Just a story, uh, several years ago, I was at a conference. Well, I had been in dialogue by email with a gentleman who was a researcher of the people groups in Peru, and I kind of knew each other and a little bit. And he had very good data for Peru, but we did not have access to it. So at a conference, he happened to be there in person and we had a meal together, and after the meal, he slid a thumb drive across the table and said, I know you've been interested in this for a long time, but now that I've met you and had a meal together, you're welcome to use this Peru data. And so I think it's building those relationships, and things like Zoom have facilitated that more so. I mean, you could do it through email, but it's a lot different than obviously face-to-face -face is best, but Zoom gives you that interactive dynamic, which has been very positive. Another collection of data is we triangulate data from various sources. Some of the other lists where we have a lot of overlap, such as with the IMB outside of South Asia, our lists are reasonably parallel. So as they gather data through their field staff, we update that, work with as many national research initiatives as possible. I think that's a level that's really developed in the last 20 years or so where a country's I mean, the U.S. is hard to imagine because it's so diverse and so big. But you think of a smaller country of maybe 20, 30 million people, they often have begun to develop like a hub of research for the Great Commission in their country. So we want to try to, I think, for example, of Ethiopia, we know some of the key researchers there, and they've assembled a very good list of data and keep it updated for Ethiopia. So we've worked with them. They started with Joshua Project data and updated it and then given it back to us so that their view of Ethiopia is essentially the same as Joshua Project's, or they're really one and the same. So when they look at our list of people groups in Ethiopia, they're like, yeah, that's right. That's the way we see it. So ideally, it's done by local people, and then we roll it up to a national level. That's really the way it should work. But obviously, in very sensitive countries, you can't do that. I mean, there is no national Christian people group research effort in the middle of Saudi Arabia. I mean, it just doesn't exist. So the more sensitive the country, the more challenging probably it is to get an accurate picture. But on a different note, though, we talked about South Asian caste. It's clearly the most complicated region of the world from a caste and people group perspective. But it's also the one that some others beside Joshua Project have done the most research and have handed it all to us. And we have people group data. You can drill down 
from a country, you look at India, then you can drill down to say Bihar, see the summary of it there, drill down from Bihar to Patna, any district within it and see the data there. It's just an incredible set of data based on census and historical work. So the Lord has been really gracious that in the most complicated section of the world, we have the most extensive set of data. So it's not by our doing. We're just a repository of others' work. So we make that available, and it's exciting to see that being used as well. Dan, it's really cool that with your skill set and background, how you've been able to use your skills and talents and work together with your team to fill in such a crucial gap of organizing and doing this research and providing this data. I think there's a lot of talk, even on this podcast, about the front lines and going out and how to share the gospel effectively and train church leaders. And that's super important. And to help focus that and direct it with informed data, I think it really fills out the picture in my mind of the body of Christ all operating, using their skills and talents and what they've been blessed with toward a common goal. And I just wanted to come back to something you mentioned earlier. You talked about urbanization a little bit and just dealing with the amount of data over the amount of time that you have. I'm very curious to hear if there are observable trends, what are the factors that are contributing to the spread of the gospel and what are the factors that are inhibiting the spread of the gospel that you've been able to observe over time? Well, let me take maybe accelerating or you were saying, what are the barriers and what are the channels that are working? I have interpreting your question. In terms of what's accelerating things, I would say there are, are a number of things. One would be just communication. We already talked about that. The whole idea that you can have a device in your hand and potentially, not always, but potentially connect with 5.5 billion other people in the world is just staggering. I mean, apparently there's about 5.5 billion mobile devices in use, I think. Don't quote me on that, but somebody smarter would know. But to think that you can punch in a few numbers into a little thing in your hand and somehow connect with and build relationships with people around the globe like that has tremendously accelerated things. That is one of the accelerants, if you will. Another, obviously, is technology itself, just the Internet and the ability to share and research, find data. I mean, back in the 1990s, we started trying to collect photos of people groups, and it was like impossible. You know, Now we get people sending us selfies and say, hey, I'm in this people group. Here, use my picture. Just a little aside, I want to make sure I come back to the things that are accelerating and barriers, but... A few years ago, we began to see all these people in India sending us pictures, and we asked them, why are you doing this? They said, well, we hear that you develop people profiles, and we wanted to marry someone in our cast, so we wanted people profiled about <laughs> us. So someone was encouraged to start an Indian matching service, you know, across cast and things. But A um, little fundraising aside. We didn't do that, but I guess it was a missed opportunity, but someone I'm sure has. <laughs> So certainly technology has accelerated the advance of the gospel. A component of that, just for example, in the last few days, I've been learning more about an effort by a group called Coalition of the Willing, and they're mapping every village or place of residence in the world. I think there's some, again, I don't know that I think they said 3 million locations that they will identify on maps via polygons make that an open source system that is available to the body of Christ, and then using that common platform can begin to tag where work is happening and where work is not happening, obviously within security guidelines. But I know they've done a pilot project in Nepal. They've identified 70,000 villages where there's no church. And then they're planning on then using that cooperatively across a number of agencies to begin strategic church planting. That kind of thing is dramatically accelerating the progress of the gospel. We talked about Bible translation and all that's happening there. I think another is just online ministry. I mean, you have huge efforts like Global Media Outreach, CV Global out of Europe and Australia, the whole media to movements where you're using media as a funnel to bring in those interested and hungry or open and then seeing them 
come to Christ and then begin to form movements all through online and then often in person activity. So that is a huge acceleration. Another that I really see happening is the whole interconnection of prayer and the advance of the gospel. I think in the past, those have sort of been separate streams really beginning to merge together where there's very concerted efforts to be praying for different parts of the world that have the most need and then seeing interconnection between intercessors and field workers in real time, I think is happening. The whole idea of movements, I don't have the full picture, but they're very rapidly accelerating church planting efforts where you see a multiplication of churches, you know, into multiple generations fairly quickly. I don't even know why I call them churches. There may be fellowships is a better word. But like in Indonesia, I've seen charts of church planters who show 18 generations. Like they planted a church, that church planted two or three churches, on and on and on, down to 18 levels. And that begins an exponential growth rather than just simply a kind of linear growth. So very encouraging. On the hindrance side of things, This may sound strange, but urbanization is a real challenge. It's really a blurring of traditional people group barriers. When people migrate from rural settings into the urban areas, usually first generation, particularly if they're older, will hold on to their ethnicity quite strongly. But as they begin to melt into an urban setting, they'll take on the common language there. They begin to network more with peers, even across ethnic and linguistic lines, maybe more identifying by their occupation or by their age or their interests than they are by their ethnicity. So I think there's a little shift happening, more than a little, it's a pretty significant shift of how we look at the world from a church planting perspective, where it's in the past been very ethnically and linguistically oriented, the people group view, and it still is helpful in many settings, but in a very urban setting where you have a blurring and kind of a conglomeration of things that people view as their identity, it changes the strategy of church planting. I've heard church planters say now that, say, a 19-year-old in Riyadh would have more in common with a 19-year-old in Chicago than they would with their own parents. And so if you're trying to plant a church simply based on their ethnic background, that 19-year-old in Riyadh, it's not going to be the best way to reach them. It might be through gaming or online social media or this massive gaming that some people have in common with one another, and they begin to form their identity. So really is going to require, I think, new strategies beyond just, well, here's a people group, we need to plant a church there, especially due to urbanization. Another barrier certainly is just the rise of, I just saw a report this week that religion is growing. And I mean that across the board, like people identifying religiously, it could be any religious tradition, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, Muslim, etc. Fewer and fewer people are non-spiritual, I guess. And so you have the rise of radical elements within all kinds of religions that are very resistant to the gospel and are putting up, you know, you think of China and what I would call, I think it's been termed the cynicization of Christianity, where they're scrubbing out anything that's non-Chinese. The government is controlling whatever is said. Anybody associating with foreigners is coming under question. Your social score that they're keeping in China is highly impacted on your values and beliefs if they're able to detect that. So there's a growing resistance to the gospel, too. I mean, even in the area of cybersecurity, you know, that's one of the challenges is if you're working in a really sensitive area, planting the church, you don't want that information anywhere. I mean, because nothing is guaranteed secure. Yes, there's levels of encryption and everything like that, but If it's stored somewhere, it's potentially available somehow. So there is that resistance to the flow of the gospel is definitely growing, I would say. But then there's a lot of really smart people on the Christian side of things who are finding unique ways of getting around some of those systems. And the Lord is giving insight and using things like artificial intelligence or cryptocurrency for positive means. A friend of mine is very focused on how to use cryptocurrency to facilitate 
transfer of funds in a very secure environment where you normally wouldn't be able to get funds into a country to support a missionary or to help with a project. But the avenue of cryptocurrency is really opening some doors that never existed before. And so taking technology, which in its essence is neutral, and using it for kingdom purposes. Yeah, it's really interesting to hear from kind of a big picture view perspective about all these factors that are coming into play. And stuff is changing so much now, even in five years, the whole landscape changes dramatically nowadays because of so much interconnectedness. It's interesting to hear you talking about urbanization. I'm sure that makes quantifying people groups much more complicated because there's not such clear definitions. In another sense, it also may really expand on the ability of the gospel to cross those same barriers. So it'll be interesting to see how that continues to play out. There were a couple references you made that I just wanted to point out. We did have Jared Nelms from the Timothy Initiative on back on episode 63, and he did a deep dive on the Coalition of the Willing for anyone who wants to hear more or learn about that. And we also had Jeff Gowler from Global Media Outreach talking about their digital ministry across the web, reaching people all over the globe back on episode 31. So if anybody wants to learn more about either of those topics, we got into quite a bit of detail with them. Dan, I wanted to get your perspective on kind of a loaded question, but how would you define the Great Commission in terms of what, as believers, as the body of Christ, we should be aiming for to follow Christ's instructions in the Great Commission? Just touching on the two gentlemen that you just mentioned, Keelan, they're good friends of mine. Just earlier this week was on a call with Jared and just exciting to see some of the things that are happening through those ministries. So I would encourage folks to listen to those podcasts because probably I ought to listen to them to get the real scoop. But <laughs> no, they're both those gentlemen doing some tremendous stuff and have an impact. If I wasn't working for Joshua Project, I might have joined one of those organizations. <laughs> to your question, there's a very good book produced by a gentleman named Marv Newell, who maybe has been on your cast. He's the head of Missio Nexus and sort of the umbrella of North American mission agencies, just called Commissioned. And he outlines the Great Commission from five different perspectives and taking it from each of the Gospels. Does a very good job. I was very impressed with that. The bottom line, and I mentioned this earlier, just the whole idea that John Piper starts his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, with the phrase, I think this is how it started, missions exist because worship does not. As I mentioned earlier, sort of the foundation of Joshua Project of the Great Commission, the glory of God has to be at the center or it turns into a task. It's just a checklist. And I think the Great Commission is just spreading the fame of Jesus' name everywhere. And whether that's through people groups, languages, villages, locations. Um, and I think a little detour, not detour, but a corollary maybe is some people have thought we could determine the return of Christ based on how we handle the Great Commission. And there certainly are passages like Matthew 24, 14, which I'm probably very familiar with, connecting the preaching of the gospel in every people group with the return of Christ. You know, the disciples have asked him, when will these signs be? And he, Jesus goes through in the preceding verses, you know, there'll be famines and earthquakes, and but those are just the beginning of the birth pangs, etc., then he finally says in 24:14 he really says the sign not signs plural but sign is that this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the nations and then the end will come i don't in any way want to pretend that we're um predicting returns or completions or time frames or anything like that i think it's just the privilege and the responsibility of believers globally to be faithful uh, to that command to make disciples of every nation, to preach the gospel to every creature, to go to the othermost parts of the world, you know, the Jerusalem, the Judean Samaria, and uttermost parts, whatever, however you want to picture it. That's our privilege and our responsibility. The Lord's timing is His. We're just called to be faithful and persevering. And it's a privilege. It's a joy, you know, to introduce someone who's never heard the gospel, to lead them to the throne of grace. What a privilege. I remember hearing a testimony of a church that had adopted a people group. And by adoption, they meant that they would then, this is a North American church, they would then commit to 
not just putting a picture up on the back of the church and saying once a year we pray for this group, but to actually pray consistently and then raise up a team to go there and plant a church and stay there committed until a church was reproducing indigenously, indigenous leadership. And they said one of the most galvanizing, exciting things was to know that that church had been involved in bringing the gospel to a people group that had previously no exposure or opportunity to hear the gospel and how that galvanized their own local church. Just the knowledge that they had been instrumental in seeing a people group impacted by the gospel. So the timing is the Lord's that all this is completed. I think it's important to recognize, he says, go and make disciples, which means that we're to teach, to baptize and teach, uh, he says further on. And so we don't really know when there will be disciples in every group. We just keep laboring until he comes back, you know. I mean, it's exciting to think we have sort of an outline of that puzzle, but the definition of a people group is not hard and fast. You know, there's probably groups that he knows or identifies that we don't understand. You know, I guess ultimately the Lamb's Book of Life is really the real checklist. It's just great to see increased clarity and increased energy toward that. Many of these big global initiatives are really focusing on the year 2033, the 2000-year anniversary of the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus. And really exciting to see that. You know, I could go into detail on some of those ministries, but it's just nothing predictive about 2033, you know, more just like it's a goal and it's achievable, just like that goal of Bible translation, you know, to think that we live in a generation where every language that needs a Bible might have the Bible translation started in that language in the next few years. That's amazing. No other generation ever been able to say that. Kind of makes you like wake up a little bit like that's pretty amazing you know and that's sort of the first domino in the whole idea of making disciples in every people group so yeah it's very exciting and just kind of digging a little deeper into that how have you seen god bring the global church together in this collaborative effort toward this end from gospel patrons who are helping to fund this work all the way to the people who are hearing the name of Jesus Christ for the very first time and everybody in between. Just incredible effort. What role does that play and what do you see happening in that space? Well, certainly a verse or chapter has come to mind. Just try to listen to audio scriptures on my drive into the Joshua Project office. And just this morning, it was First Corinthians 12, which talks about, you know, there are many gifts, but one body and many a great diversity, but one Lord, one head, sort of that beauty of a diversity, but then all one body. And I think that that is happening more and more in the missions arena, mission space, where I would say probably back in the 1990s, lots of people talked about collaboration, but it kind of was just talk. It really ended up being pretty siloed when it really came down to actually doing the work. But that has been a tremendous change, that idea of partnership, collaboration, genuinely working together across geographic, across cultural, even denominational, even across what I would term secondary theological lines. I mean, obviously, there's some core theology that we need to have together, but secondary issues of theology are being set aside in order to work together I love theology, so I don't want to minimize it in any way, but certain things have divided the church in the past that I think in the missions world are being set aside because of the greater purpose of the glory of God being being made known. Just an example of the kind of collaboration that is so encouraging to see is, for example, I've been in meetings where someone will say, okay, this people group doesn't have anything happening. And so then the Bible translators will say, okay, we will try to find folks to begin Bible translation. I'm kind of summarizing, and this has never happened in its exact format, but this is the kind of thing that happens. The Bible translators will say, okay, we'll translate the Gospel of Luke first. So then the Jesus film guys can make the film. And then the Jesus film guys say, well, we're going to help get the equipment to an on-site team to show the Jesus film in that people group. And then the national leaders of maybe a neighboring church or the national church in the country where that people group is will say, we'll raise up 
the manpower to show the film on your equipment that you're providing. And then the national church forms a partnership in order to reach that people group, maybe with Western missionaries or who else. And then the donor will underwrite the whole thing, maybe like the translation process, then move that to the Jesus film production to actually creating Bibles, printed Bible to helping with language training to partnering with a national church to then have a team that actually does the church planting in and from a nearby culture and then begin to see even training ministries that do more formal biblical training education uh, come into that spectrum. So you're talking about probably five, six, seven, eight different entities working together kind of in a progression, if you will, that then goes from nothing to seeing an indigenous church beginning to be raised up and trained in a people group. So that kind of collaboration is really accelerating, I think. And I think even on this whole idea of there's a number of what I would say global initiatives, I'd name a few, You've already, we already touched on a couple, but i just throw out like finishing the task as the one, the Go Network, mainly out of Europe, the GACX, Global Alliance for Church Planting. I think you may have had Bekele Shanko on uh, one of your podcasts. Uh, the Billion Soul Harvest, mainly an Indonesian and Korean effort. Uh, Transform World, Vision 5.9, Coalition of the Willing, Empower 21. All of these are like global efforts focused on the year like 2030 or 2033 with their distinctives, but really working together. Just a few months ago, I was at a Billion Soul Harvest gathering and they did not allow anybody to put their organization on their name tag because they didn't want it to be, you know, like, oh, well, you're with such and such a group and you're, oh, that's what you do. That's your ministry. It was meant to be like, we're, this is one body and we have different roles, different parts, but we're working together toward a common objective. So I think that's really exciting to see. Yeah, and I'll just point out a couple of those references you made there. We did have Bekele Shenko, who leads GACX back on episode 51. And then we had Josh Newell, the executive director of Jesus Film, back on episode 45. That's just one of the privileges of being a part of this podcast, I think, is getting to see all the minds that God has pulled together behind everything that you're talking about and seeing it all come together. I'd love to hear, in light of all that, what are you most excited to see in the next five or 10 years as we look forward to what God is doing and what's going on with the Joshua Project? Well, I've touched on a couple of them already, but just the idea of the availability of scriptures. I think that no other generation can say that. Just the idea that God's word would be available in the heart language of anybody that wanted it. Now, that is still a little way off, but the idea of starting it in the next five to 10 years is very realistic. I remember not long ago, heard one of the heads of one of these agencies, someone asked them, do you really think this is realistic? And he said, it's inevitable is the way he termed it. That's one of the exciting things. I think the acceleration of church growth, this rapid multiplication of churches, I mean, there's always the balance. We don't want a lot of width with no depth. I mean, you need to have depth in church planting. But certain parts of the world are seeing very rapid multiplication of churches. When you focus on not just winning, say, a Muslim to Christ and extracting him out of his culture and putting him together with five or 10 or 20 other people that you've extracted out of their culture. Rather, it's how do we build a bridge into that culture and see the gospel flow within it rather than taking converts out of that culture? And so the whole idea of indigenous movements to Christ where you're seeing I think there are folks that attract us that we work closely with because it impacts whether a group is considered reached or not. But acceleration of movements to Christ, and there's a very specific definition of what constitutes a movement. But I would say 20 years ago, there were a handful, and now they're tracking, documenting nearly 2,000. And there are some issues. You know, I don't want to make it sound like it's this panacea or something that, you know, there are some movements that dissipate or they get off track or whatever, but just the Lord is using that in some way. I'm excited about what technology can offer. It has its dark side. There is used for dark purposes, but the more we can leverage that for kingdom purposes, I mean, just taking scripture translation data and people group progress data and having AI and doing analysis to see, is there any correlation? If so, what does it tell us? 
one of the calls I was on earlier this week was with Josh Newell and Jared and Nelms and several others who are interested in measurement. How do we gather the data to measure? Is the gospel getting to every person? Are we, where are the gaps? Just the use of technology is, has some tremendous opportunities, I think. And then the focus on cities. You know, we talked about the whole issue of urbanization is a challenge, but you brought it up, I think, Keelan, the idea that, that could be a blessing because here they're geographically connected in a setting and some of the barriers that may have existed through language or culture are breaking down. And so the gospel may be more free to, to move in those settings. Just we have to seek the Lord for wisdom on what is the strategy to make that happen. But like just yesterday, I was introduced to a wonderful initiative to pray for the 110 largest, I think what they would term most unreached cities of the world. And so there's a real global prayer initiative headed by some of these big networks, International Prayer Council and others, to engage the body of Christ to pray for these 110 cities over the next year during specific time periods. For example, like during Ramadan, there's a I think it's called the night of power they have. I think it's the last night of Ramadan. I should know this better, but like the Josh Newell and the Jesus film have often had what they call the night of blessing or night of power, I think, where they have a 24-hour prayer for the Muslim world so that now that's going to extend to these cities and have a focus on that last day of Ramadan, a real focused prayer for the Muslim world by hundreds, thousands, maybe millions of believers around the world. And so there's a, this focus on cities, I think, is a very exciting thing. I think one that really is close to my heart is in Romans 10, 11, 12, the whole issue of when the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, there will be an awakening among the Jews. And that's beginning to accelerate as well. More Jews have come to Jesus as the Messiah in the last 40 years than in all of history put together before that. So there's a stirring, I think, among the Jewish people and that is right there in Romans foretelling of, you know, if their rejection of the gospel was life to the Gentiles, what more will be their coming to faith? You know, just the blessing that God will bring through that. So I think that stirring is a very exciting thing as well. So, you know, it's not all roses either. There's a lot of resistance. And this fact kind of keeps me awakened. Statistically, there are more people alive today than ever before in history that are unbelievers. And so in an absolute sense, in a way, we're losing ground. Now, that's not, you know, I've talked about all this rosy stuff, but we often, yes, the church is growing faster percentage wise. But from an absolute number point of view, the reproduction of the non-believing world is outpacing in absolute numbers. And we won't get into the weeds of the math, but there's a lot to do, put it that way. Yeah. But just getting a better handle on what it looks like and seeing the progress that is happening and some of the opportunities in front of us is incredibly encouraging. Well, Dan, I've really enjoyed hearing some of your perspective and getting kind of an inside look in the work that you've been doing for some time. And it's just massively appreciated as we wrap up this episode, we just want to leave a little bit of time for our manager's minute. And we just like to end every episode with one practical action that our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and to manage God's wealth wisely. So Dan, do you have a suggestion for our listeners to that end? I do. Wealth can be measured financially and in other ways. Time is a wonderful resource in it. I would just encourage folks who might listen to this to consider downloading an app, and maybe it's a little self-serving because it's one that we offer, but it's just called Unreached of the Day. I could care less if it has anything to do with Joshua Project, but it's just an app that presents a different unreached people group each day, a picture, basic statistics, little summary of who they are, maybe something unique about them, and then some prayer items. And it's made so that you can do this in one minute, basically a day, pray for an unreached group. And there's a feature in the app where you just press a button that says, I prayed. And then it shows you the total of people who else have pressed that button that day. It's not a huge number, but it's encouraging to see that you're joining several thousand other people who are specifically praying for an unreached group. And the reason I bring this up as an application is one, it's very simple. Just go to the, wherever you get your apps, just hunt for Unreached of the Day. 
But I think as we begin to pray for those without the gospel, those empty seats at the marriage supper, if you want to put it that way, we begin to develop a heart for that. And then our other resources, maybe financial or our activities or our relationships may flow out of that. I know for me in college, it wasn't people groups, but it was countries. And I just daily began to pray for through Operation World and the countries of the world. It changed me. And so I would just say a one minute daily prayer for unreached people group can really be transformative. And uh, hopefully this app makes it really simple to do and encouraging that you're joining others in the body of Christ who are doing the same thing. So that would be my one minute plug. It's free. We don't make any money off of it. It's in nine languages. I guess what I really encourage is just a consistent prayer for unreached groups that then will spill into a whole lifestyle. Thanks so much, Dan, for all the time that you've given us, for all your perspective that you've shared. And it is just so encouraging to see how much has happened since 1995 in the early days of the Joshua Project and what God is doing in the world right now. And you and the rest of the team have been very central to that. So we're grateful for all that you have done. And how can people find out more about the Joshua Project if people want to learn more? Main thing is just you can go to joshuaproject.net and find your way around there. And if you run into anything you don't understand or is wrong or is the name of a river rather than a people group, <laughs> you can uh, email me at dan, just D-A-N, at joshuaproject.net. And uh, email is probably our primary channel of communication, and we try to respond within a day or two of whatever comes our way. So love to hear from people. The website has a lot. It's kind of clunky. I'm the main, really the only person responsible for developing and maintaining it. So it could use a lot of help, but hopefully you can find a few of the things that people are interested in. So joshuaproject.net is the best tool to learn more. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Dan, for joining us tonight. Oh, my privilege, gentlemen. I am excited about what you're doing and how God is using this podcast to further his kingdom. So thank you, gentlemen. It's terrific. Thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting a financial finish line, the finish line movement, or anything you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to connect with them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would introduce us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 66. That's it for today. We'll see you next time. <laughs>